My name is Shasya Sharma. I am a product manager on the S3 team. And I'm very excited to be hosting today's session, which is managing data at scale with Amazon S3. So I'm going to start with a very simple overview of the S3 service. And then there are going to be four talk tracks. And the, these four lines of discussion are going to map to your journey as a user with S3. So we'll start by discussing how you can bring large volumes of data into S3. Once you bring that data in, how do you manage access to that data? Next, we'll discuss how to manage the data itself using storage management tools that S3 provides you with. And we'll wrap up today's session with a really nice demo on batch operations. With batch operations, we learn how you can affect change to objects, uh, millions, even billions in one smooth go. Okay? So that's the agenda for today. There's still time to escape. These are our related breakouts. Now, because we are at the tail end of reInvent, uh, some of these sessions have already been completed. If you could not make a session or if you simply want a refresher, session recordings are uploaded on our official AWS YouTube channel. So I'm going to keep the overview of the service simple and brief. Customers are using AWS in every imaginable use case. So whether that is DNA sequencing or uh, collecting geospatial imagery or collecting data from autonomous self-driving vehicles, building data lakes, and many, many more use cases. All of these use cases require the active tracking and management of very large volumes of data. And customers continue to use AWS and S3 because S3 operates at an incredible scale. Now, as you can see, over the last several years, the number of objects and consequently the amount of storage in S3 has had hockey stick growth. We have over a million customers who have stored exabytes of data with us, spanning trillions of objects. And it's not uncommon for us to process peaks of several million requests per second. So we're going to be talking about storage classes in this presentation. So this is a nice spot for a recap. You can store your data in one of six storage classes with S3, starting with S3 standard on the very left. Now, S3 standard is designed for frequently accessed objects, and you can retrieve them within milliseconds. As your data grows colder and older, this data is going to become a better candidate for the storage classes that are displayed towards the right. If your data is not accessed for an extended period of time, it will become a suitable candidate for even archiving with Glacier or Glacier Deep Archive. Now, as we move from the left to the right, your costs are going to decrease. So where you would pay two cents for storing a GB of data for a period of a month in standard, you would pay less than one-tenth of a cent to store the same GB of data for one month in Glacier Deep Archive. Put a different way, 
that is just $1 for a terabyte of data stored for one month. Conversely, your retrieval times are going to increase. So where you can retrieve your data from S3 standard within milliseconds, when your data is stored in colder storage classes, it can take up to minutes or hours to be retrieved. So as promised, that was quick. And we're going to start with our first line of discussion today, which is storage ingest. We're going to discuss how do you get started with bringing data in. Now, data is critical to all digital products and projects that are being run in the cloud. But customers tell us that moving large volumes of data can be a little difficult. I'll give you an example. If you had a dedicated one GBPS network connection, it would take you 100 days to transfer one petabyte of data. So the good news is that AWS has a diverse set of services that will allow you to ingest data quickly, easily, and it supports multiple types of data. Now, I won't have the time to dig into each and every one of these services today, but I'm going to touch upon a few, including the Kinesis Firehose, the Snow Family, and AWS Storage Gateway. So first up is the Kinesis Firehose. This is truly suitable for real-time streaming data. A Firehose, once set up, will automatically scale in volume and throughput to match the incoming streaming data. Another cool thing about the Kinesis Firehose is that you can perform operations on the data before you upload it. For example, if you wanted to compress it, if you want to encrypt that data, maybe you want to batch it. You can also run your own custom Lambda functions. A common example of a Lambda function that our users run is converting Apache logs into standardized JSON. Another thing that you can do with the Firehose, which I think is really cool, is that it concatenates incoming records into a single S3 object. The reason this is important is because it reduces your transactions per load, and it also reduces your transactions cost. All right, time for a pub quiz. How many folks are familiar with the Hertz Corporation? A few, all right. Um, let me ask a different question. How many of you are familiar with the digital magazine Cosmopolitan? This is a safe space, you can say yes. Uh, other magazines like Esquire, the Oprah magazine, they're all owned by the Hertz Corporation. Um, the Hertz Corporation is one of the world's largest uh, media and information companies. They have over 300 publications. And they use the Kinesis Firehose to collect real-time streaming data from all their digital publications and upload into S3. So I thought that would be a fun example for you to learn about. Next, we've got the Snow family. Now, the Snow family is a collection of three separate services, and this is really just a collection of physical devices that you can use to physically transfer data into and out of AWS. And I'm talking exabytes of data here. So how does this work? It's really simple. You uh, go to the AWS console and tell us you want a device shipped to you. I'm going to use the Snowball as an example. 
In that case, AWS will ship a Snowball device out to you, and then you can connect that to your local network. Once connected, you install a Snowball client on that device. The Snowball client will help transfer files from your local network onto the device. Once the transfer is complete, you can simply ship the device back to us using the freight carrier of your choice. The cool thing about uh, the Snowball client is that, is that it comes inbuilt with AES 256-bit encryption. However, the encryption key never travels with the device. So while your device is in transit, all your data is safe and secure. Once AWS receives your device, we will transfer all of that data as S3 objects into S3. Your objects are going to maintain their native formats. Easy? We've got one more, which is the AWS Storage Gateway. Now, the Storage Gateway is really a network file share. It's a file share that you can connect to your on-premise devices, and you can also connect it to EC2. You can mount files on this file share, and all the files that are mounted will be converted to S3 objects and uploaded to S3. What makes this special is that with an AWS storage gateway, you can now connect legacy applications, for example, a data warehouse that has no native S3 capabilities uh, with S3, and you can continue to upload large volumes of data. So that finishes our first track in which we saw how to bring large volumes of data into S3. So the next question, that you might have is, I've brought this data in. How do I manage access to this data? I have several applications, and I have several users that are accessing the, this data, and I only want them to get to the objects that they need and no more. So a little bit of background first. Today, you can manage your access using three mechanisms. The first is an access control list, or what we call an ACL. The second is a bucket policy. And the third is an IAM policy. The first two are resource-based. That means you will attach them to a resource, either an object or a bucket. The third one is a user policy, which is attached to a user role and dictates what a user is allowed to do in your account. I'm going to focus on bucket policies for a bit. Now, today, every bucket in S3 has its own bucket policy. A bucket policy will then have several rules in it. Each rule governs how an application or a user can access the objects within that bucket. A bucket policy works well up to a certain point. But when your data begins to scale to an appreciable amount, and when the number of applications and users in your organization also begin to scale, it means that now suddenly your bucket policy has several rules. It's getting very long, and it gets complex to manage. It takes a lot of time to read it, to write to it, to interpret, and most importantly, to audit a bucket policy every time you make a change. Because when you make a change, you need to make sure that you, have, you don't inadvertently affect other applications and other users that are also relying on this policy. So in order to simplify access to shared data sets in scaled environments, earlier this week, we introduced S3 access points. Now, this is brand new information. Feel free to Instagram this. 
Now, you're familiar with the construct of a bucket, right? It's just a logical container for storage. An access point is a brand new construct in S3. It is a resource type. Simply put, an access point is a network addressable endpoint that you can get use to access and operate on objects within a bucket. So now every application and every user in your organization will get their own access point with its own set of custom permissions. This way, you are no longer bottlenecked by a single, long, complex to manage bucket policy. So let's dive into an access point a little bit more. This is the state of the world today where you have a bucket, there's a bucket policy attached, and you can reach the contents of a bucket using a traditional bucket hostname. With the introduction of access points, you now have more inroads into the same bucket, okay? So in this example, I'm showing two access points. An access point will have a hostname. It's going to have its own ARN. Remember, it's a new resource type. Each access point will also have its own access point policy. So I'm going to dig into the hostname a little bit more. It follows the format where it begins with the access point name. So here, the names are AP1 and AP2. Very creative, thank you. It's then followed by the account ID. Chew over this a little bit. There's an account ID embedded in the hostname. This is important. And I'll get to it why. I'll get to why very quickly. An access point exists in the subdomain S3-access point. It's followed by a region name. In this case, it's US West 1. The region that you supply in your access point has to match the region of the bucket that the access point is connecting to. They can't be different. And then we end up with AmazonEWS.com is the main domain. An access point name, unlike a bucket name, can be reused. A bucket name in S3 today exists in a global namespace. So once it's been taken, nobody else can take it. It doesn't work like that for an access point. An access point name has a uniqueness criteria, and that it has a uniqueness tuple, to be precise. And that tuple is the account ID and region. Simply put, that means you can reuse the access name within the same account in multiple regions. Now, a bucket can have several access points connecting to it, but every access point can only connect to one bucket at a time. An access point is a resource type by itself. However, an access point cannot exist by itself. Once created, it always has to be attached to a bucket. If you no longer want to use an access point, you can always go back and delete it, and you can spin it up again with the same name and connect it to a different bucket. So now that we understand what an access point is, let's see how they're going to be used. So this is what the organi your organizations looked like just until two days ago, right? Multiple clients use a single host name to get to a bucket. With the introduction of access points, every client has their own dedicated access point to get to the bucket. And this is important for four reasons. The first one is that you have segmented your clients. As a result, you will be able to operate more effectively in a shared environment, in a multi-tenant environment. 
The second advantage is that every access point listed here has its own custom policies and permissions, which means that these clients will now be able to operate only on the objects that lie within their functional scope. The accounting department doesn't really need to read what's in a sales report. The sales department doesn't really need to write to an accounting record. And this is more easily achieved with access points than with a long, complex to manage bucket policy. The third advantage is that even though you now have several access points and you have several policies and permissions, the storage management of your bucket will still happen in a centralized way. You will still have a centralized bucket level policy that maintains that for you. The last advantage is that you can reuse access point names. Now, the introduction of an access point does not change the way you use bucket host names today. Your users, your applications can continue to use existing bucket names without any impact. However, if you wanted to stop using the bucket host name altogether, you could do that as well. Access points can be configured with a network origin control. What that means is you can control the origin of the access. In this example, I have limited the access to VPCs that I trust. So let's take a quick look at what access points would look like in your console today. I've navigated into a bucket and I see a new tab at the end that says access points. You can come here, create, and hit the Create Access Point button, which will take you into the Create workflow. Once created, your access points will be listed here. I've got uh, several access points created for the different departments in my organization, from development, support, product, program, sales, marketing, accounting, et cetera. I can create as many as I like. Now, I'm going to select the access point that I have permissions to use, and then I'm going to hit the Use This Access Point button. What that does is it changes the view of my world on the console just a little bit. Up top, we set context by telling you which access point you're using. So it says Access Point Development. And now I can see all the objects, but the operations I perform on these objects will be limited by the policy that was associated with the access point development. Right? So if the policy said I'm only allowed to write to this bucket, I'll only be able to do that. If the policy said that I can only read from this bucket, I'll, be only, I'll only be able to do that. I can exit this view at any time by hitting the exit button. The underlying driver behind wanting to manage access is that we all want security. Right? We all want a way to ensure that there is blanket protection for our resources. So this is a common question that we get from our customers. Is there a way I can protect all my buckets or my entire account in a very simple, straightforward way? Not only do I want to secure my resources, I also want to understand which resources require my attention, which resources are at risk of unintended exposure. So the answer to this question, is there a simple way to secure all my buckets, is yes. I'm going to quickly touch upon two products that help us understand how to lock public access down to a bucket, 
and how to discover buckets that are at risk. So we'll start with block public access. This was a feature that we uh, launched at reInvent last year. Now for some context, ac public access can be given to your resources through an ACL, through a policy, or through a combination of both. So using block public access, you can provide blanket protection to your resources that has, uh, to resources that have public access that was granted either through an ACL or through a policy or through both. Access that was granted to new data, to old data, or to both. You can protect your resources at a per bucket level or at your entire account. This is how it works. So the screenshot that you're seeing up here, this is block public access at the account level. That's what it says in the heading. If you wanted to apply the same change at the bucket level, it would be the same settings, just the scope would reduce to the bucket, okay? So you'll see that we have a parental control here that says block all public action, and then there are four subcontrols. Now these four subcontrols have been designed intentionally, keeping your security needs and keeping your feedback in mind. So there are two very common themes in the feedback that we were hearing from customers. The first one was, I like my security setup the way it is. It works for me. I want to ensure that there are no changes that come in the future that could impact my setup today. In order to help with that, we have two options here. And these two options are going to block public access from any new ACLs or any new public policies that come in the future. The second use case that we used to hear very often is when customers would say to us, I want to block all public access granted through an ACL and I don't care if it's a new ACL or an old ACL, or I want to block all public access that is granted by any policy, and I don't much care if that policy is new or e existing. In that case, we've got two more options here, which block public access from any ACL or any bucket policy. Now, AWS recommends that you always select the parental control. You have the ability to go more granular, but blocking all public access to your resources is going to give, give you the highest level of protection. So this is all well, this is good. I know how to quickly secure my bucket with a single click. I come to the console, select the bucket, hit that button. That's great, right? The question I have is, and I'm sure you have it too, is which bucket should I be applying this to? Earlier this week, we launched Access Analyzer for S3. And this is the feature that will help you identify which buckets require your attention. Access Analyzer is an IAM capability which is directly integrated into the S3 console. Here's how it works. It continuously monitors your resources and its policies. Every time it discovers a bucket that has been shared, it's going to flag that bucket for you in the console. Not only is it going to give you a list buckets, it's also going to tell you how that bucket has been shared. What is the root cause of the problem? Is it your ACL? Is it your policy? Is it both? It's going to go one level further, and it's going to tell you what level of shared access has been given. Read, write, list, permissions, maybe all. So 
at this point, you are armed with a lot of knowledge, right? You know exactly which bucket is exposed, you know what mechanism it's exposed through, you know what level it has been exposed at. So this enables you to take remediation action very, very quickly. This is what my access analyzer looks like. Keep in mind that you will have to enable access analyzer uh, through the IAM console before this view shows up on S3. So you can see that there are two uh, tables here, two sets of buckets in my account that are at risk. The first table shows you buckets that have public access. This is scary. You know why? Because anybody with an internet connection can get to these resources. They can see my data, right? The second um, table, it shows buckets that I have conditionally shared with another AWS account. So it's not visible to the public, but it is visible to a different account, and that account could be outside of my organization. What do I do now? At this point, you have three courses of action to take. The first one is you can select a public bucket, and you can smash that block or public access button. One click, and your bucket is immediately protected. The second option is you can click on the bucket name itself, which is going to deep link you to the permissions page for that bucket. There, you can granularly edit either the ACL policy or the bucket policy to bring access back to what you intended it to be. The third option is you can select one of these findings, and you can hit the archive button. What does that do? There are specific and verified use cases in which you may want to keep your data public. For example, you're hosting a publicly available website, or you want your content to be publicly downloadable. In this case, by archiving that bucket, you acknowledge that, yes, I know this bucket is shared, I've reviewed it, and I intend to keep it that way. When you archive a finding, S3 is not going to remove that entry from this page. It continues to stay there. So you can always revisit this page to see which, ones, which buckets are exposed. The status column is going to tell you whether um, the finding is active. That means it requires your review. Or it's archived. You've reviewed it. You said it doesn't matter to you. If you change your mind at any point, or if your use case is no longer valid, you can always come back to an archived finding and shut public access down to it. So that brings me to track three or four for this session. We spoke about how to bring large volumes of data into S3, and then we spoke about how to manage access to those large workloads. Now I want to talk about how you manage the data itself. You see, as your data begins to grow to an appreciable amount in S3, uh, there are certain common questions that will arise. My data is growing, but I don't want my costs to grow at the same pace. I have millions of objects. How am I going to back up and create all of this? Back up and protect. And the third is that I have so much data. How do I track how this data is changing over time? Which one of my million objects was changed? How, how do I audit the storage that I have? S3's storage management tools are going to help you answer all of these questions. Now, in this track, I'm going to talk about four storage management tools. 
I'll start with lifecycle policies, jump into storage class analysis. We'll then talk about replication, and I'll wrap up this track with inventory reports. So before I start with lifecycle policies, I want to bring this slide back up again. Recall how your costs are going to reduce as you move your data into colder storage classes. Now, when your data grows very large, manually moving your data from one storage class to another storage class is tedious. It doesn't really scale well. So here's where we introduce the first of four storage management tools, which is called lifecycle management. Lifecycle management will automate the transition of your data between the various storage classes. So it'll take your, storage, uh, your data from one storage class and automatically move it to another one, which is more economical for you. A lifecycle policy is simply a time-based rule. And you can apply it to an entire bucket, or you can scope it down to objects within that bucket based on a prefix or based on a tag. You can select current or previous versions of objects to transition. And when you transition these objects, they automatically bring your costs down. Now, lifecycle policies have two kinds of rules in them. One is a transition rule. It's time-based. So after a certain time condition has been met, your data is going to transition. And the next kind of rule is expiration, where you can expire the current version of objects after a certain time has elapsed. You can also permanently delete the objects from your storage as well. There's one more use for lifecycle policies, and that is cleanup. When there is a lot of data, there is also a lot of incomplete multi-part uploads, or your storage could have a lot of lone delete markers. Both of these can be configured in a lifecycle policy, and the policy can simply flush these out of your storage when you no longer need them. So this is what a lifecycle policy looks like. It's super simple. It's an XML. If you were configuring a lifecycle policy through the CLI, you'd have to provide JSON. But here we're going to take a look at the XML, which is also very similar. So here I've got the ID for my policy, which is example rule. Next, I've got a prefix that is documents. I'm simply scoping the transition down for all objects that live under the prefix name documents. If I wanted to transition all of the objects in my bucket, I would simply leave this field empty. Next, the status is enabled. I can always go back and disable it if I want to pause a lifecycle transition at any time. And you'll see I have two transition rules, uh, two rules here. A transition rule that moves my data after 365 days into, a, into archive tier Glacier. And I have an expiration rule that will expire my data after 10 years. All storage management tools have support on API, CLI, and SDK. And it's probably the easiest to configure these policies on the console, which is the screenshot that you see on the right. It's the exact same as the XML that has been provided. So I know what a lot of you are thinking. I get it. I can transition my data to a more economical storage class. I'll save on my costs. I used the number 365 in my policy on the last slide. But is that the right number for your organization? 
How do you figure out what the time is when your data becomes suitable for transitioning? That introduces us to the second storage management tool for the day, and it's called storage class analysis. Now, before I dig into storage class analysis, I quickly want to touch on access patterns for your objects. Access patterns are of two types, commonly frequent and infrequent access. So what you see on the screen, the gray solid blob, which seems to be increasing over time, that's your storage. And the gray dotted line, that is your rate of retrieval. So when you retrieve more than 100% of your storage over the period of a month, S3 interprets that as frequent access. Conversely, when you retrieve less than 100% of your storage over the period of a month, S3 interprets that as infrequent access. Put a different way, S3 believes that your data is now beginning to cool down. So with storage class analysis, you can simply configure a bucket or objects within that bucket that you want S3 to analyze on your behalf. S3 will do the analysis determine which access pattern is being observed with your objects, and then it's going to give you recommendations. So if you take a look at this screenshot, it shows data that I have in a bucket. Between days zero and 15, my data is being frequently accessed. Between days 15 and 30, my data is still being frequently accessed. Once I've crossed the 30-day mark, suddenly my data is not being accessed as frequently. So S3 now indicates to me that my data has become a great candidate for the infrequent storage class. It's time to transition my data and save some money. So now that I have this recommendation, it's very easy for me to take action on it. I simply pick that number, which is 30. I go back to my lifecycle policy, and I update that lifecycle policy to reflect this number. My data has changing access patterns. Now what? This happens when your workloads have access patterns that are either unknown or unpredictable, typically when you're working with training data or if you're working in a very large data lake. In this case, when your access patterns are unpredictable and they don't fall cleanly into either the frequent or the infrequent camps, we recommend the use of a storage class called intelligent tiering. Now, strictly speaking, intelligent tiering is not a storage management tool. It's a storage class. It sits between S3 standard and S3 standard in frequent access. Intelligent tiering in and of itself has two access tiers. It has a frequent access tier that is priced the same as S3 standard, and it has an infrequent access tier which is priced the same as standard and frequent access. So when you put your data in intelligent tiering, it does two things for you. The first, it's going to monitor your data for its access patterns. And second, it's going to automatically tier your data in one of those two access tiers, which is either an infrequent access tier or a frequent access tier. There's no operational overhead required here. There's no impact to your performance. There's just a lot of chilling involved. Do keep in mind that the use of the S3 intelligent storage class 
um, incurs a small monitoring fee. This is our third storage management tool for the day. Now, before I start off on replication, uh, I do want to talk about the concept of a region within AWS. AWS and S3 today have 22 regions spread across the world. Each region, in turn, is made up of a minimum of three availability zones, or what we call AZs. Each AZ, in turn, is a cluster of data centers. The way we architect our regions, we can withstand the loss of an entire AZ. Let that sink in. That means that we can lose an entire set of a cluster, uh, a set of data clusters, and we will still be able to withstand that loss. Still, there are things that you can continue to do for increased resiliency in your applications. And one of those things is to replicate your data to a different region. That way, you'll be able to back up and protect that data with higher resiliency. Now, many of you work in organizations that have users that are geographically widespread. You have users in Latin America, in Asia, in Europe, in addition to the United States. So it becomes important for your data to live closest to your users so that the latencies of your applications are minimized. That's another advantage of replication. When you replicate to a region that is closer to your users, your applications will have better latencies. Another thing that you can do with replication is you can satisfy compliance requirements. If you have a geographical distance requirement, you can replicate your data across a different region. If you have a data sovereignty requirement where your data needs to stay within a single region, you can also replicate the data within the same region. Now, same region replication is something that we launched very recently. We're very excited about it. And speaking of things that we've just launched, replication time control. Since its introduction in 2015, cross-region replication has been used by millions of customers, and they have replicated trillions of objects. So a common question that we receive from users is, how do I track my replication process, right? Of these million objects, which ones replicated successfully? So we've um, launched the feature replication time control. And this is essentially predictable replication. 99.99% of your objects are going to replicate within 15 minutes, and we back this with an SLA. You can also monitor the progress of your replication using Amazon CloudWatch. So this is a replication configuration on one of my buckets. You'll notice that I am replicating data within the same region. I'm replicating it from Singapore into Singapore. If I wanted, I could have replicated to a different region as well. You'll also notice that I have two rules in this configuration. You can have several rules in a single replication configuration. You're not limited to just one. How do these rules differ? You'll notice that I have scoped them differently. The first rule is scoped to the prefix documents 2016. That means all of my objects that live under prefix documents 2016 
I'm going to replicate over to the Glacier Storage class. They're kind of old. I don't want to pay a lot for a replica copy, so I'm just going to put it in archive. The second rule is scoped to all the objects under prefix documents 2019. Now, these are objects that are newer. I expect that I'm going to have to access them more frequently. So I have replicated them within the same storage class. I haven't sent them to archive just yet. So this is interesting to note. Not only can you replicate your object to another region, you can also replicate your objects to a different storage class, depending on how frequently you expect that data is going to be accessed. I want to draw your attention to the next column um, on the slide, which is replicated object owner. In this case, it's the same as the source bucket. That means I own the replica as well. If I wanted to, I could have replicated my data to a different AWS account. That adds an added layer of protection in case either, one, either of the accounts is compromised. Come on. OK, there. There's also a field called priority in here. The higher the number, the higher the priority. Priority simply tells us which one of these rules you want us to execute first. And that brings me to the last of the four storage management tools. It's called S3 Inventory. Now, as the name suggests, an inventory is simply a flat list of the objects in your storage. Now, Typically, you may have used the list operation to list the objects in your buckets. But a list operation only works well unto a certain point. Once your data grows, it's not as effective. Uh, the option that we recommend you use in this case is S3 inventory. It scales much better. And it's also significantly cheaper than a list call. Not only is it cheaper, an inventory list is also going to give you richer data. It will give you the list of the objects in your storage, and it will provide you with a list of metadata on those objects. So for example, if you wanted to learn which of my objects are replicated, which of my objects are encrypted, are my objects, um, do they have object lock configuration? An inventory report is going to tell you all of that. And all of this extra metadata is available at no extra cost to you. An inventory report is asynchronous. It is scheduled. That means once you configure it, it will be delivered to you once every day or once a week, depending on what you prefer. An inventory report can come to you in several different formats, for example, Parquet, CSV, and more. And once you receive an inventory uh, report, you can analyze it. You can use standard SQL and Amazon Athena to gain insights into your storage. Once you have insights into your storage, it's a really cool way of tracking changes over time. How is my storage truly changing? So it's very helpful for tracking and auditing purposes. And I'm very pleased to announce uh, the addition of a new field in our inventory reports. We launched this just a few weeks back. And this new field was highly demanded from our customers. And it tells you which access tier 
of the intelligent Turing storage class your data sits in. That gives you object level visibility into access tiers, and it helps you reason about your billing outcome. So this is a screenshot from uh, our console. When you navigate into a bucket and when you select a management tab, you can then go and select inventory and configure the report you want. So you can pick the output format that you'd like. You can pick the object version that you want reported in the inventory report. You can limit it to current versions or older versions of objects. You can see all of these optional metadata fields. They come to you at no extra charge, so you can select one or you can select all. And once you run this inventory report, that's a sample of an output from my account. In the first column, uh, the bucket name is listed. In the second one, that's my object keys. These are all the objects in my storage right now. The third column tells me which storage class these objects exist in. I have them put in intelligent Turing. The fourth column tells me whether these objects are being frequently or infrequently accessed, and as a result, if they are in the infrequent access tier or the frequent access tier of intelligent Turing. As you can see from the last column, none of my objects are encrypted. But wait, there's more. So inventory reports have one more really cool use in that they can be used as an input into batch operations. And that's what we'll be ending our session today with. Batch operations allow you to take action at scale. You can use this new feature, we launched it in April of 2019, to easily process thousands, millions, or even billions of S3 objects in a simple and straightforward manner. You can copy objects to another bucket, you can replace tag sets and atlas. You can bulk restore objects from Glacier. Or you can invoke a custom Lambda function. You don't have to write code. You don't have to set up server fleets. You don't have to figure out how you're going to take a large workload and distribute it amongst this fleet. You simply have to configure a job. After a few simple clicks, when your job is created, turn it loose. S3 will then take over and it will do the heavy lifting of executing that job using massive behind-the-scene behind um, parallelism to take care of the work. Now, for the demo today and for batch operations in general, there are three steps that you will typically follow. The first is you will um, provide us or select the objects that you want to operate on. And you can tell us what these objects are either by giving us a CSV list or by providing an inventory report. And we just saw how to generate an inventory report. So that's what I'm going to use in my demo. Next, I'm going to select an operation that I want to perform. And the one I want to do today is I want to replace object tags. And last of all, because you are likely to be performing a batch operation on a large number of jobs, you want to know what the progress of the job is. Right? You want some sort of confirmation that your job has succeeded. You have multiple options. I'm going to select the completion report for the day.
So what you're seeing in front of you is the batch operations job in the uh, batch operations page in the S3 console. Notice that I have the region Singapore selected. That's where all my jobs exist. I have several jobs already created. And I'm just going to go ahead and create a new job. There are four steps that I need to take here. The first is I need to choose a region and a manifest. Next, I need to choose the operation that I want to perform. Third, I'm going to configure additional options. For example, I want a completion report today, so I'm going to select that. And last of all, I'm going to review. So I'm going to start by selecting a region. I've selected Singapore. The region has to match the region that your objects sit in. I'm then going to choose a manifest form. It can be either an inventory report or a CSV. I'm going to choose an inventory report today. So I'm just browsing my storage for it. This is just a manifest file. And uh, a manifest is simply the list of objects that I want to perform the operation on. That was easy. Step one is done. Next, I'm going to choose an operation that I want to perform. Here, I want to replace all tags. In S3, a tag is a simple key value pair. So I'm going to enter the key demo. And I'm going to give it a value of reInvent 2019. This brings me to my additional configurations. Description for a job name is completely optional, but I'm going to give one for readability. Now, while I do that, uh, take a look at the priority field that is immediately after. When you have several concurrent active batch operation jobs, a priority tells us which batch operations job you want us to execute first. In this case, I'm just going to leave priority at 10 because this is the only job I'm running in this demo. I want a completion report, so I'm going to leave that option checked. And I'm going to provide the destination where I want this option, uh, this completion report to be delivered. So I'm just going to pick a demo bucket in my account. Now, all batch operation jobs require you to have a specific IAM role before you can run it. So in this workflow, we provide the template policies that your IAM role is going to need. You can simply copy and paste this policy to your IAM role and update the resource type. We also provide you with a trust policy with the service principle that you need to add to the role as well. I'm going to select an IAM role in my account that I've already attached these policies to. And I'm going to hit Next. At this point, I can quickly review the job for completeness and for accuracy. And I'll hit Create Job. So my job was created. You can see that um, it is the first job in the list here. So you'll see the description, the operation that I selected. Status is new. And you can see that the total number of objects is not available yet because S3 is still processing that job for completeness and accuracy. 
So after a while, you'll see that the status is updated to awaiting your confirmation. At this point, you can simply select the job and hit confirm and run. Creating a job does not automatically run it. We require that you confirm the job because you're about to apply a change to many, many objects as one, at once. Everything looks good to me, so I'm just going to hit run job. So you'll see that the status has, is updated to ready. It's updated now to active, that means that the job is running. And when I refresh this page, it's already completing. Now the reason this job is completing so quickly is because I only provided 14 objects in the manifest, because I really wanted this demo to complete in time. But the process for affecting change to 14 objects or 14 million objects is exactly the same. You would simply provide a larger manifest file than I just did. A batch operations job is asynchronous, so I know we are hanging out on this page, but you really don't have to. You can navigate away and do and complete other operations. I'm going to give this a few more seconds, though. And there. The status of my job is complete. It's finished running. So I'm now going to dig into the job report. Here, I get a recap of what I've just done, which region I operated on, how many objects I acted on, the status of my job. There's a link to the manifest file, so I can always come back and check which objects I ran the job on. It recaps the operation that I performed. And here's that completion report that I really wanted. So before we jump into the completion report, I want to show you an object that was in my manifest. So you can see that a tag has now been added to it. And if I expanded on the tab properties card, I'd see that the key value pair that I provided is now added to that object. I'm going to navigate back into the bucket and I'm gonna go into the job ID for this job. The reason I know it's this one is because it's ending with an 89E. I go into my results folder, and here I see a completion report. It's in the CSV format, and it's listing all of the objects that I just impacted change to. Again, I only kept 14 objects because I wanted this to end quickly, but the same process would apply if you had a million of them. I have a local copy of the completion report saved, so I didn't save it here. And this brings us to the end of batch operations, and with the end of batch operations, also the end of the session. So we learned in the session how to bring large volumes of data into S3. After bringing these large workloads in, we learned how to manage access to those workloads. Next, we learned how to manage the underlying data itself. And lastly, we learned how to impact changes to data at scale. Now, before you leave, um, if you could please complete the survey in your mobile app, we would really appreciate that. 
Your feedback is important because it allows us to craft and deliver content that is meaningful to you. Again, my name is Shasya. I hope you enjoyed the session, and I hope you've enjoyed your time at reInvent. Thank you.